Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 welcome to the georgine rice show podcast this program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 kpdq we hope you enjoy the show well good afternoon and welcome to the monday edition of the georgine rice show glad to have you with us james blend producing dave king engineering in portland pedro bartez engineering and producing in seattle Today, we're looking forward to a conversation with Ambassador Francis Rooney. He's going to talk with us about the Hamas attack on Israel, its global implications, and the Israeli-U.S. response. That's coming up later in today's program. But we'll also try to catch up with some of the headlines from the last several days. Well, Sandra Day O'Connor, who served over 24 years on the Supreme Court as its first female justice, died on Friday morning in Phoenix. She was 93. O'Connor, who retired from the high court in 2006, died of complications related to advanced dementia, probably Alzheimer's, and a respiratory illness, the Supreme Court announced. A daughter of the American Southwest, Sandra Day O'Connor blazed an historic trail as our nation's first female justice. That's a quote from Chief Justice John Roberts on her life in the court's announcement. She met that challenge with undaunted determination, indisputable ability, and engaging candor. O'Connor's husband, John O'Connor, whom she met while attending Stanford Law School and retired from the high court to take care of, died in 2009. O'Connor, who came to be considered a centrist to conservatives on the high court, was appointed in 1981 by President Ronald Reagan and unanimously confirmed by the Senate. Well, those days are certainly over, aren't they? Reagan called O'Connor a woman for all seasons when introducing her to the American people. She was born on the 26th of March in 1930 in El Paso, Texas. She grew up on a cattle ranch near Duncan, Arizona. After graduating near the top of her class at Stanford University in 1952, she faced sex-based hiring discrimination, not uncommon in those days. She called 40 law firms in California, and not one of them would give her an interview. O'Connor recalled in an interview on NPR in in 2013, rather, She eventually wrote a long letter to the San Mateo County Attorney's Office in California, offering to work without compensation if necessary, according to a Supreme Court blog post about her life. As a result of that letter, she got the job as a deputy county attorney and would go on to pave the way for other women in legal careers. Uh, She's the author of five books, was known for her pragmatic approach in writing, 301 opinions for the Supreme Court. She was considered a swing vote by the news media and other court watchers, although she personally disdained that label, according to the blog. We at the Supreme Court mourn the loss of a beloved colleague, a fiercely independent defender of the rule of law, and an eloquent advocate for civics education, Roberts said. And we celebrate her enduring legacy as a true public servant and patriot, end quote. When in later life, O'Connor, who was known for her work founding and leading iCivics, a nonprofit civics education platform that encouraged American students to become active citizens. In 2009, then-President Barack Obama awarded O'Connor the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian honor. She is survived by three sons and six grandchildren. Funeral arrangements are pending. 
Israel is recalling its negotiate, I should say, recalled, past tense, its negotiating team from Gutter after talks with Hamas reached a dead end. Due to the dead end in negotiations and following instructions from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Mossad head David Barnea ordered the negotiating team in Dubai to return home. That was the public statement released on Saturday afternoon. The Hamas terror group did not fulfill its obligations under the agreement that included releasing all the women and children that were on the list provided to Hamas that had authorized it. The head of Mossad thanks the um, head of the CIA, Egypt's intelligence minister, the prime minister of Gutter, for their partnership and the tremendous mediation efforts that led to the release of 84 women and children from Gaza, in addition to 24 foreign nationals. The statement issued on behalf of Israel's intelligence agency. Well, on Friday, fighting between Israel and Hamas resumed after talks broke down because the terror group failed to uphold its agreement to release all kidnapped women and children. Officials familiar with the truce Uh, told Axios that Hamas sought to pivot the discussions to the release of elderly men instead. Well, according to an Israeli official, Hamas didn't want to release the remaining female hostages because it doesn't want them uh, speaking publicly about what they have endured. Um, Imagine what that means, said uh, a former speechwriter to the Israeli delegation to the United Nations, uh, writing on X on Saturday, the Palestinian terror group's culpability was echoed by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who confirmed on Friday that the pause came to an end because of Hamas, which began firing rockets before the pause ended, adding that they reneged on the commitment to uh, that it made in terms of releasing certain hostages. Meanwhile, Hamas blamed Israel for the breakdown in talks and for its refusal throughout the night to accept all offers to release other detainees. Negotiations took place throughout the night to extend the truce during which the movement offered to exchange prisoners and the elderly. A statement from the group alleged Hamas offered to hand over additional bodies of hostages purportedly killed from Israeli bombings. That's being questioned. As fighting restarted, negotiations were still active to uh, secure the release of remaining Israeli and foreign hostages in exchange for Palestinian prisoners, according to Gutter. The state of Gutter is committed, along with its mediation partners, to continuing the effort that led to the humanitarian pause and will not hesitate to do everything necessary to return to calm, the guttery foreign minister stated. Uh, At least 110 hostages have been freed, with an estimated 137 remaining in the hands of Hamas. Meanwhile, the architect of the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel sent a threat to the Jewish state this week. Actually, it was last week, claiming the massacre was just a rehearsal. Uh, Yeha Sinwar made the threat in his first public statement since the terrorist attack. Israeli media network Arutz Sheva reported the leader of the occupation should know, Shinar uh, said, referring to the Israeli leaders. The attack was the deadliest day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust. Hamas murdered 1,200 people, took 240 hostages, and uh, th- that included women, children, and the elderly. Sinwar's threat came during the temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas to allow for the release of dozens of women and children being held hostage in Gaza in return for Palestinian criminals held in Israeli prisons. Some of the Israeli hostages who were released said Shenwar went to see them when they were in captivity. He reportedly spoke fluent Hebrew with the hostages. Shenwar was with us three or four days after we arrived. One of the former hostages said, I asked him how he was not ashamed to do such a thing to people who, for all their years, supported peace 
He didn't answer. He was simply silent. Sinwar's threats uh, track with top Hamas official uh, Ghazi Hamad, who said in an interview last month on Lebanese news channel LBC TV, we must teach Israel a lesson and we will do this again and again. Less than a year ago, Sinwar uh, threatened Israel in front of a cheering crowd in Gaza. We will come to you, God willing, in a roaring flood. We will come to you with endless rockets. We will come to you in limitless flood of soldiers. We will come to you with millions of our people like the repeating tide, Sinwar said in December last year. And apparently he has not changed that tune. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You are listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the second hour of today's program, a conversation with Ambassador Francis Rooney on the Hamas attack on Israel, its global implications, and the Israeli and U.S. response. That's coming up. Later in today's program, an American warship and several commercial ships faced attacks in the Red Sea on Sunday. We were uh, uh, we're aware of reports regarding attacks on the USS Kearney and commercial vessels in the Red Sea and will provide information as it becomes available. The Pentagon said at the time, a U.S. official said that the attacks began around 10 a.m. in the Sanaa, Yemen and um, lasted about five hours. Officials didn't say where the attacks may have come from. Yemen's Iran-backed Houthi rebels have launched several attacks in the Red Sea in recent weeks and have launched uh, drones and missiles toward Israel since the start of the the Israel-Hamas war in October. Last month, Houthis seized an Israeli-linked vehicle transport ship in the Red Sea. Pro-Palestinian protesters marching through Philadelphia on Sunday congregated outside Goldie, a falafel restaurant owned by American-Israeli Chief Michael uh, Solomonov, uh, vandalizing its front door and windows and chanting, Goldie, Goldie, you can't hide, we charge you with genocide. Well, he was born in Israel, raised in Pittsburgh, focused um, uh, on Italian cuisine at the start of his career. Um, That changed in 2003 when his brother, David, who had volunteered for the Israeli Defense Forces, was killed by sniper on the Lebanese border. He then owns, um, or I should say now owns, a variety of Israeli and Jewish-style restaurants, mainly in Philadelphia. Well, Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro sharply condemned the protesters, focus on a Goldie in a post on X. However, um, his outrage produced absolutely no real response. But he wrote, tonight in Philly, we saw a blatant act of anti-Semitism, not a peaceful protest. A restaurant was targeted and mobbed because its owner is Jewish and Israeli. This hate and bigotry is reminiscent of a dark time in history. White House spokesman Andrew Bates also addressed the mob's actions, saying it is anti-Semitic and completely unjustifiable to target restaurants that service Israeli that serve Israeli food over disagreements with Israeli policy, as Governor Shapiro has underlined. This behavior reveals the kind of cruel and senseless double standard that is calling uh, a calling card of anti-Semitism. He went on to say President Biden has fought against the evil of anti-Semitism his whole life, including by launching the first national strategy to counter this hate in American history. We'll always stand uh, stand up firmly against this kind of uh, undignified action. Well, the chanting at the restaurant was part of a broader rally in which demonstrators blocked traffic in downtown Philadelphia, marched through the neighborhood in which the University of Pennsylvania is located, video taken Near Penn's campus showed a crowd of protesters chanting, long live the Intifada, and there is only one solution, Intifada revolution. Making reference to one solution 
having a much broader and historic meaning. Protesters also reportedly ignited smoke bombs in the color of the Palestinian flag, vandalized university property, spray-painted Free Palestine on a map of the campus in one instance uh, and of um, defacement. The University of Pennsylvania has been in the news since um, even before October 7th for what some argue is a climate-fostering anti-Semitism. University President Liz McGill, alongside the leaders of Harvard University and Massachusetts Institute of Technology, will testify in front of a House Education and Workforce Committee on Tuesday on that very thing. Jewish high schoolers are abandoning their Ivy League aspirations in response to campus anti-Semitism. Even if he were offered a full-ride scholarship to an elite university, Anton Frank would turn it down in a heartbeat. The high school senior from New York City who would love to go to Harvard, Yale, or any other Ivy League school just a few weeks ago, but that all changed after the Hamas attack on October 7th. Seeing what's happening on those campuses, he says, I don't feel that it would be uh, worth it to have to fear for my life every single day just to get a quality education that I could find in an environment without that sort of cutthroat anti-Semitism. The teenager sporting a black nail polish, a gaming headset and flowing black hair said his parents fled the former Soviet Union looking for a better future for their son. And although not raised strictly observant, like many American Jews, he goes to synagogue on high holidays, had a bar mitzvah and wears a Star of David necklace. I've had to hide it recently when I've been going into the city for various reasons because I almost got attacked. After seeing college campuses devolve into open displays of support for terrorism and Jewish students sheltering in libraries from mobs, he considered forsaking the university experience altogether. Seeing all those attacks, all this hate on the campuses, I'm not sure I even want to go, he reflected. In the end, the aspiring engineering student applied to several schools but didn't even bother applying to the Ivy League because, well, I don't really want to get accepted and then have to transfer out for fear for my life because of anti-Semitism. And he's not alone. There are others who've simply chosen either not to attend at all or certainly not to attend some colleges or universities, which is a shame in the United States of America. Well, the violence against Israeli women on um, and since October 7th has gotten little to no outrage from feminists and advocates for women's rights across the globe. Rape being used as a weapon of war seems like the sort of thing they ought to be fighting against. In fact, it's an act explicitly condemned in the Geneva Convention as a war crime. So why the silence here? Well, there is a spirit of um, denialism on the progressive wing of the, the left Uh, that allows for moral blindness on the grounds of racial Marxist worldview. This blindness causes its accolades to profess that any and all atrocities committed against Israel, a supposed colonizer, of course history suggests otherwise, are justified because of moral equivalence and because the Palestinians are more racially oppressed due to their darker skin. Hmm. I've been there. I don't see it. But not only is this thinking highly racist in and of itself, but there is an entire branch of the Jewish people like the Africans, uh, black people. Uh, Morality based on the oppressor versus the oppressed model is always going to be uh, set up for horrors to be justified in the name of, uh, well, that same thing. It's merely racism with another face. So on the grounds of decolonization and racial Marxism, the pro Uh, Hamas um, 
advocates, both before, during, and after the attacks, even with a video and medical evidence widely available, actively justified the crimes against Israeli women on October 7th. Even the uh, pro-Hamas supporters can no longer claim that Israel made it up. They still say that Israel deserved it because Israel's um, relationship with Palestinians and even the U.N. Women's Organization has been slow to respond and hasn't responded very forcefully. However, now some voices are being raised, uh, pointing out this hypocrisy, and one can only hope this will balance the ledger. Well, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum has announced his exit from the 2024 presidential race on Monday after failing to uh, break through in the crowded Republican primary. Now, many didn't know he was in the race because he actually never showed up to any of the major events because he didn't qualify. But he said in a statement, our leadership and understanding of how the global economy really works has shifted from conversation toward the critical need for Americans to get its economy a sprinting versus crawling became energy dominant and win the Cold War with China, Burgum said in a statement. The governor was polling at just 0.6 percent, according to Real Clear Politics polling average. Well, Burgum, a billionaire who made his riches as a software executive, used his own fortune to fund the first shot campaign. In July, he announced a plan to give away 20 dollar gift cards to the first 50,000 donors who donated even a dollar to his campaign in an effort to meet the requirements to participate in the first GOP primary debate in August. He first offered donors full-size American flags before moving to the gift card giveaway. His departure is the latest in a string of recent exits from the race. Senator Tim Scott, former Vice President Mike Pence, conservative radio host Larry Elder, and former Congressman Will Hurd are on that list. While Burgum failed to garner much attention among potential voters, the governor apparently sparked the interest of some Trump allies, with the Daily Beast previously reporting that he is seen as a a potential cabinet pick in a hypothetical second Trump term. Former President Donald Trump is the front runner in the race, polling at 61.1 percent, according to Real Clear Politics average. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis at 13.6 percent and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley at 10.2 percent are locked in a battle for second place. Representative George Santos became the sixth congressman in U.S. history to be expelled from the House of Representatives after many GOP uh, of his GOP colleagues joined the United Democrat Caucus on Friday in booting him from the lower chamber. The final whip count was 311 in favor, 114 against, with two members voting present. The indicted uh, congressman, his ouster from the lower chamber, will usher in an ultra-competitive second, uh, rather special election in his Long Island and Queens district that the Cook Political Report has already uh, rated a toss-up. Once Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul sets a date for the special election, likely earlier next year, local party officials in Santos district will then choose their nominees. Well, in their long-awaited debate, Governors Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis didn't disappoint, vigorously sparring on issues from crime to the border to gender transition for minors. Well, we'll tell you a, a little bit about some of the takeaways from that debate last week when we return, but we do need to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Also looking forward to a conversation with Ambassador Francis Rooney coming up in our second hour. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, in that long-awaited debate between Governors Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis, 
It didn't disappoint. Newsom, a Democrat, DeSantis, a Republican, defended their different approaches to government, two of America's most populous states, California and Florida. Well, Sean Hannity, he moderated the Thursday night debate. It ran around 90 minutes and was very informative. Uh, Some of the takeaways on COVID-19 and the lockdowns, DeSantis and Newsom had a lengthy exchange on COVID-19 lockdowns while discussing the economy in their respective states. When DeSantis was discussing how businesses were doing better in Florida, Newsom interjected by asking if that was the opinion of Disney. Well, that's an interesting point when the Disney being uh, because I had Disney open during COVID and we made them a fortune and we saved a lot of jobs, DeSantis said. You had Disney closed inexplicably for over a year. You were not following science. You were a lockdown governor. You did a lot to damage your people, end quote. Well, Newsom responded by saying that DeSantis declared an emergency declaration before he did. You closed down your beaches, your bars, your restaurants. It's a fact. You had quarantines. You had checkpoints all over the state of Florida, Newsom said. You followed science. You followed Dr. Anthony Fauci. Well, he further said that DeSantis' policies catered to the fringe of his party and led to the deaths of tens of thousands of people. Well, DeSantis responded by saying that a Lancet studies showed that Florida had a lower standardized death rate than did California. Then on the border and immigration, the two governors had sharply contrasting views on the border. Newsom accused DeSantis of being heartless toward illegal immigrants, and DeSantis said that the policies of Newsom and fellow Democrats were creating dangerous lawlessness in America. Newsom defended the Biden administration's record on the border, which has seen record numbers of illegal immigrants crossing in every year of Biden's presidency. The administration put out a comprehensive plan on day one, When he got sworn into office three years ago and the Republican Party didn't touch it, they didn't move on it, Newsom said. He continued to say that there is nobody he would trust less on the issue of immigration. When he was in Congress, he supported amnesty, Newsom said of DeSantis. He then criticized DeSantis for sending a group of illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard, a wealthy area and popular vacation spot in Massachusetts. Well, DeSantis said that Newsom was spreading a flurry of lies. He pointed to the Biden administration's reassurance that the border is secure and said, they're lying to you. We know that's not true. The Florida governor pointed out that California is a sanctuary state and said that they thumb their nose at federal immigration law. DeSantis explained that this statute has uh, consequences. He brought up a story of Los Angeles refusing to cooperate with immigration and customs enforcement in the case of an illegal immigrant with multiple arrests. He ends up murdering the mother of three-year-old little girl, he said. Those policies are deadly. They do not work. He also said that Martha's Vineyard is a sanctuary jurisdiction. These liberal elites, they like to impose those burdens on you They don't want to have to face the consequences, DeSantis said. And then on explicit books and book banning, Hannity brought up the debates over the issue of explicit pro-LGBTQ books in public school libraries and classrooms. First, he asked DeSantis if schools should be focusing on reading, writing and math instead of getting into issues about social values. Well, DeSantis, not surprisingly, said it wasn't appropriate for schools to indoctrinate children, but it's also important to respect parental rights and eliminate inappropriate material from classrooms. He held up a page from a book called Gender Queer that depict sex acts. Uh, Some of it's blacked out. You would probably not be able to put it on air. This is pornography. It's cartoon that's aimed at children, and it's wrong, he said. Hannity asked Newsom if he was comfortable with these uh, books, books like Gender Queer, which depict sex acts in school districts. 
Uh, That's not part of the curriculum. They aren't teaching kids that, Newsom said. He then pointed to DeSantis and said the bottom line is that you are on a book banning binge in your state. The California governor called the removal of books from classrooms a cultural purge. What I find offensive is that a very significant number of these books happen to be LGBTQ books. A significant number of these books happen to be about African-Americans, and I find it offensive, he said. Well, Newsom said that they have sex education in middle school and high schools uh, where it's appropriate. Well, he called the book's issue made up and part of the culture war that weaponized grievances. Well, DeSantis responded by saying that California's schools are being used to impose a liberal agenda. He says California's respect, uh, California respects parents' rights. This is rich, DeSantis said. He's been telling a lot of whoppers tonight. Uh, that may be the biggest. He then spoke about California's education policies, saying that in California, if you're a parent in Idaho and New Hampshire, your children can go to California without your knowledge and without your consent and get hormone therapy, therapy, puberty blockers and sex change operation, all without you knowing or consenting. He called the policy fundamentally radical and extreme. It's not for you to decide. It's for parents to decide, the Florida governor said, while pa- by uh, pointing to Newsom. On the subject of homelessness, the governor's debated the issue. Newsom said that the issue has been decades in the making in California since the state started shutting down mental health institutions. He said he was the first governor in the country to tackle the the issue head on. We're investing unprecedented resources, more accountability. We've gotten 68,000 people off the street. It's um, close to 6,000 encampments we've gotten off the street, he said. We're also uh, investing and unprecedented resources in reforming our behavioral health system. Ron is literally the worst mental health system in America. Forgive me, outside of Mississippi and Texas. DeSantis then held up a map of San Francisco that showed incidents of uh, feces and human waste being reported on the street. This is an app where they plot the human feces that's found on the streets of San Francisco. And you see how almost the whole thing is covered because that is what has happened in one of the previous greatest cities this country has ever had. DeSantis uh, said the um, the excrement on the streets has become a fact of life in San Francisco, except when a dictator comes to town. He was referring, of course, to the recent visit by China's leader, Xi Jinping. Then they cleaned up the street. Uh, the street. They lined the streets with Chinese flags. They put American flags there. They cleaned everything up, DeSantis says, though they're willing to do it for a communist dictator, but they're not willing to do it for their own people. Then they talked about different types of freedom. DeSantis said his first thought to Uh, Newsom's claim about California's freedom was laughable, but then he thought more about it. California does have freedoms that some people don't, uh, that other states don't, he said. You have the freedom to defecate in public in California. You have the freedom to pitch a tent on Sunset Boulevard. Boulevard. You have the freedom to create a homeless encampment under a freeway and even light it on fire. You have the freedom to have an open-air drug market and use drugs. You have a freedom, if you are illegal, Uh, to get all those taxpayer benefits. So those are freedoms, he added. They are not the freedoms our founding fathers envisioned, but they have contributed to the destruction of the uh, quality of life in California and the results speak for themselves. Well, Newsom, of course, responded by accusing DeSantis of curbing other freedoms. I love the rant on freedom, the California governor said. I mean, here's a guy who's criminalizing teachers, criminalizing doctors, librarians, women that seek their reproductive care, namely abortion. You're making it harder to vote. You're banning books. I mean, spare me the notion. 
Finally, they touched on the subject of abortion. Despite repeated questions from Hannity, Newsom refused to identify any abortion limits he would support on the issue of extreme exception that uh, you highlight as it relates to the issue of late term abortion. It's almost always because of fetal anomaly or the life of the mother. And in those cases, I trust the mother and her doctor make those decisions, he said. Well, DeSantis said Newsom was wrong regarding late term abortions and said data in Florida indicate 88 percent of later abortions were elective. Uh, Asked about why he supported a six week abortion ban in Florida. DeSantis recounted the story of Miriam Penny Hopper. I think about uh, one of uh, our Floridians, a lady named Penny Hopper. She actually survived a late term abortion back in the day. And they left her on a table there to basically wither away. Her grandmother came, saved her, brought her up, brought her to a hospital. So she counts and she matters, he said. Newsom asked DeSantis to state whether he would sign a federal six-week abortion ban, but DeSantis did not answer. It was a rather interesting and telling debate between two very popular governors in very populous states. Uh, If you have the opportunity to check it out online, it gives you a, a view of the philosophical differences between the two parties. Well, a corporation owned and controlled by Hunter Biden made several direct monthly payments to President Biden beginning in 2018, according to bank records released by the House Oversight Committee on Monday. The subpoenaed bank records obtained by National Review reveal uh, Owasco PC established a monthly payment of $1,380 to President Biden beginning in September of 2018. The committee says the payments establish a direct benefit Biden received from his family's foreign business dealings, despite Biden's claim that he has never benefited from or been involved in his son's ventures. This wasn't a payment from Hunter Biden's personal account, but an account for his corporation that received payments from China and other shady corners of the world, the House Oversight Chairman James Comer said in a new video detailing the findings. At this moment, Hunter Biden is under an investigation by the Department of Justice for using Owasco PC for tax evasion and other serious crimes. Comer says the payments, as part of a pattern revealing Joe Biden knew about, participated in and benefited from his family's influence peddling schemes. As the Bidens received millions from foreign nationals and companies in China, Russia, Ukraine, Romania and Kazakhstan, Joe Biden uh, dined with his family's foreign associates, spoke to them by speakerphone, had coffee, attended meetings and ultimately received payments that were funded by his family's business dealings. The committee added in a press briefing. Uh, It was unclear based on the bank records how many monthly payments were made, but a source familiar with the committee's probe said investigators had discovered at least three payments. Last week, the committee released an email from a bank money laundering investigator who expressed serious concerns about a transfer of funds from China that ultimately trickled down to President Biden in the form of $40,000 check from his brother, James Biden. Again, this is an impeachment inquiry under which these um, disclosures are being made. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. Coming up later in the program, in our second hour, a conversation with Ambassador Francis Rooney on the Hamas attack on Israel, its global implications, and the Israeli and U.S. response. Responses, I suppose, would be 
more accurate. While the ceasefire between Israel and the terror group Hamas is over, heavy clashes are reported in different areas along the Gaza Strip. The Israeli defense forces blamed Hamas for violating the terms of the truce, while Hamas claims Israel declined offers to free more hostages. Gutter said Friday the efforts were underway to restore the ceasefire. My guess is they continue. Well, the Biden administration is facing heavy, heavy criticism from native Alaskans over its crackdown on oil and gas drilling in Alaska, activity which generates tax revenue vital to key state and local programs. Native Alaskan leaders have particularly taken issue with the Department of the Interior's recent actions blocking future oil and gas development in the National Petroleum Reserve, or NPR, an area in North Slope Borough, Alaska, specifically set aside by Congress for resource development in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and in federal offshore waters off the state's coast. Congress needs to fulfill its promises made to us over 40 years ago. That's Charles Lampe, the president of the uh, Koktovik Inuit Corporation, adding, uh, we will not succumb to the eco-colonialism and become conservation refugees on our own land. The people have every right to pursue economic, social and cultural self-determination. The laws of the United States should support indigenous populations, not interfere with these basic human and political rights. We'll see where that goes. A former American diplomat who served as a U.S. ambassador to Bolivia has been arrested and accused of secretly serving as an agent of Cuba's government, according to the Associated Press. Officials say Manuel Rojas, 73, was arrested in Miami on Friday on a criminal complaint. According to sources, more details about the case are expected to be made public at a court appearance. Federal law requires people doing the political bidding of a foreign government or entity inside the U.S. to register with the Justice Department, which in recent years has stepped up its criminal enforcement of illicit foreign lobbying. According to records, Rojas' 25-year diplomatic career was spent under both Democratic and Republican administrations, with the majority of it being in Latin America during the Cold War. Roca also served in Italy, Honduras, Mexico, and the Dominican Republic, and worked as a Latin American expert for the National Security Council. President Biden's campaign for re-election in 2024 is facing growing pressure from Muslim Americans who vowed not to back him over his handling of the Israeli-Hamas war. On Saturday, Muslim leaders from several swing states, including Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Minnesota, Nevada, and Pennsylvania, descended on Dearborn, Michigan, to coordinate a national response. Organizers have dubbed their campaign Abandoned Biden and vowed to make sure President Biden does not get a second term in office. Muslim and Arab leaders have been pushing the Democratic president to call for a ceasefire as the death toll from the Israel-Hamas conflict in Gaza continues to mount. As of Saturday, the death toll in the war was 15,200 Palestinians, according to the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza, which does not distinguish between civilians and combatants. Some 1,200 Israelis have been killed, most during the October 7th attack on Israel by Hamas that triggered the war. The ceasefire between Israel and Hamas ended Friday after the IDF accused Hamas of firing at Israel. Hamas, meanwhile, has claimed that Israel rejected an offer to release more hostages, but failed to release those they had already agreed upon. The House committee leading the impeachment inquiry against the president. They're expected to grill top witnesses behind closed doors this month as the investigation reaches a critical phase. Assistant U.S. Attorney Leslie Wolf is up first this month. She's expected to answer questions during the deposition that begins at 10 a.m. Tuesday before the House Judiciary Committee. The committee chairman, Jim Jordan, subpoenaed Wolf last month 
after whistleblowers alleged that she sought to block investigations from asking questions or rather investigators from asking questions related to the president throughout the years long federal investigation into Hunter Biden. IRS whistleblower Gary Shapley, he alleged that Wolf worked to limit questioning related to the president and and apparent references to uh, Biden as dad or the big guy. Wolf allegedly said there was no specific criminality to that line of questioning relating to uh, the president, which Shapley said upset the FBI. The Internal Revenue Service is raising the uh, the stakes for those who underpay their taxes by ratcheting up the interest penalty that will be assessed in next spring's tax filing season. Earlier this fall, the IRS increased its interest rate penalty on estimated tax underpayments to 8 percent, a notable jump from 3 percent just two years ago. And they raised uh, raised significant funds uh, with the previous interest rate. The House is expected to hold a floor vote this week on legislation that would strike down pending federal regulations targeting gas-powered vehicles and prohibit any future electric vehicle mandates. The Choice and Automobile Retail Sales Act, or CARS Act, introduced over the summer by Representatives Tim Wahlberg, Republican out of Michigan, and Andrews Clyde from Georgia, will be considered by the House Rules Committee today before It would then be voted on by the Senate, where Republicans and Democratic Senator Joe Manchin recently introduced companion legislation. The House must pass the Choice and Automobile Retail Sales Act to block a radical and unattainable federal EV mandate that will cripple our auto industry and forever make our supply chain reliant on China, Wahlberg Uh, told Fox News Digital on Monday. The American auto industry is at its best when they are free to innovate and listen to the will of consumers and not constrained by bureaucracy. If this mandate goes into effect, many American families will be priced out of the market and will, um, will cede leadership of this industry to China, he continued. Instead, we must prioritize affordability, innovation, and freedom for each family to decide what car is best for them. Wahlberg and Clyde Uh, along with more than a dozen other House Republicans, introduced the legislation months after the EPA proposed its most aggressive tailpipe emissions ever. If the rule is finalized, a staggering 67% of new sedan, crossover SUV, and light trucks up uh, to 50% of bus and uh, garbage trucks, 35% of short-haul freight tractor, and 25% of long-haul freight tractor purchases could be electric by 2032, the White House projected. But as we discussed last week, there are real problems with that. Well, the U.S. Office of Management and Budget is calling on congressional leadership to approve additional funding for Ukraine in its war against Russia, warning that there will be no money by the end of the year to support Ukraine without action from Congress. Office of Management and Budget Director Shalanda Young wrote a letter to House Speaker Mike Johnson House uh, Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell stressing an urgency to pass more funding to supply weapons and equipment for Ukraine's ongoing war that began in February of 2022. I want to be clear, without congressional action by the end of the year, we will run out of resources to procure more weapons and equipment for Ukraine and to provide equipment from U.S. military stocks, she wrote. There is no magical pot of funding available to meet this moment. We are out of money and nearly out of time. 
end quote. Young said ending the supply of U.S. weapons and equipment to Ukraine will kneecap the Eastern European country on the battlefield by risking the gains Ukraine has already made and raising the possibility of Russian military victories. She said U.S. Um, packages of security assistance have become smaller and aid deliveries have become more limited. Anthony Blinken, uh, while in Tel Aviv, warned Israel on uh, long war, saying, I don't think they uh, you have the credit for that. Now, was this a threat? Well, in barely a hint of the nation's existential need for victory, Blinken said, I made clear that before Israel resumed major military operations, which they have now resumed, it must put in place humanitarian civilian protection plans that minimize further casualties of innocent Palestinians, Blinken said. Ilya Shapiro says, can we exchange Blinken for some hostages? Mark Derb- um, Dubowitz of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, a Biden administration is setting the stage to abandon Israel. Lincoln and Biden should be ashamed, Senator Tom Cotton said in response to the latest efforts of diplomacy from Biden and Blinken. The idea that after the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust, Israel needs credit to defend itself is outrageous. Blinken and Biden should be ashamed. Ed Morrissey weighed in. Biden and Blinken uh, seem perfectly ready to extend an unlimited amount of credit to Hamas these days. And this is a perfect example. Blinken essentially blames Israel for all civilian deaths in Gaza rather than the terrorist quasi government that is actually violating all the norms of armed conflict and hiding behind those civilians. Well, governor's debate, Newsom and DeSantis, well, they went head to head. It may have an impact on the upcoming election. We'll just have to wait to see. Twitter files reveal more more than censorship. All of this is profoundly un-American, argued Mike Schellenberger and Matt Tybee on Thursday in the hearing on weaponization of the federal government. Two days ago, my colleagues and I published the first batch of internal files from the Cyber Threat Intelligence League, which show the U.S. and U.K. military contractors working in 2019 and 2020 to both censor and turn sophisticated psychological operations and disinformation tactics developed abroad against the American people. All of this is profoundly un-American. We'll continue to follow that story. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news at the top of the hour, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Ambassador Francis Rooney on the Hamas attack on Israel, its global implications, and the Israeli and U.S. response. That's coming up in our next segment. Well, Texas is suing Pfizer over false and deceptive claims on the COVID vaccine. According to the uh, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, the lawsuit notes, how did Pfizer respond when it became apparent that its vaccine was failing and the viability of its cash cow was threatened? By intimidating those spreading the truth and by conspiring to censor its critics. Pfizer labeled as criminals those who spread facts about the vaccine. It accused them of spreading misinformation and it coerced social media platforms to silence prominent truth tellers. Well, Pfizer uh, um, debuted the jab in late 2020 with a promise that it was 95 percent effective against COVID infection. The company used this statistic based on a final efficacy analysis to bully Americans into getting the shot in the name of protecting their family and friends from the virus. We'll certainly continue to follow the story with Texas in the lawsuit. First, do they have standing and where it goes from there? A key question for liberal American Jews and Israel. Can the leaders of liberal American Judaism say fundamentally 
We were wrong. Daniel Gordis asked the question on the future. It's going to depend on a very difficult question. Can the leaders of liberal American Judaism say fundamentally we were wrong about Jews in America? If we made Judaism about social action, that wasn't all that different from the Methodists or Presbyterians or the whoever's that fundamentally we'd be accepted. For a hundred years, we built a community on a premise that was wrong. An interesting question. The International Criminal Court sent prosecutors to Israel. This is not just a diplomatic issue. It's legally Jerusalem has said for years that it does recognize the ICC's jurisdiction such that even informal interactions are under the microscope in terms of that significance and meaning. Should the ICC decide to prosecute and issue arrest warrants for Israelis, this could obligate around 125 countries, including essentially the entire EU, to arrest Israeli soldiers or officials, something which could alter the Jewish state's global standing in a very negative way. A gag order has been reinstated for former President Donald Trump. A New York um, appeals court Thursday reinstated the gag order that barred the former president from commenting about court personnel after the former president repeatedly disparaged a law clerk in the New York City civil fraud trial. The one sentence decision came two weeks after an individual appellate judge put the gag order on hold while the appeals process played out. Trial Judge Arthur N. Gorin, who imposed the restriction, said he now planned to enforce it rigorously and vigorously. Well, a German tourist was stabbed to death on Saturday evening a few hundred yards from the Eiffel Tower in a suspected Islamic terrorist attack, rattling a nation on high alert because of the Israeli-Hamas war. The suspect, identified as a Frenchman in his mid-20s, born of Iranian parents, was arrested shortly after the slaying, said the Interior Minister. France's counterterrorism prosecutor opened an investigation. Authorities in a number of European countries fear the war is stirring Islamist extremists on the continent to plan attacks. The French government raised the terrorism alert to the highest level on uh, level in October after an Islamist radical stabbed a teacher to death in a high school in the north of France. Prosecutors said the assailant in this case, a refugee from Russia, was motivated by the deaths of Muslims across the world, not specifically in the Gaza Strip or the West Bank. The incidents, the number of uh, of incidents has increased around the world as well. Well, President Biden is facing a humiliating foreign policy setback as $6 billion he used to leverage the release of five imprisoned Americans from Iran could be frozen. Lawmakers, including members of Biden's own party, voted on Thursday to approve a bill that would permanently freeze those funds, which were unfrozen by the White House in September as part of a controversial deal. The bill, named the No Funds for Iranian Terrorism Act, passed 307 to 119 vote Uh, which was approved by almost every Republican and 90 Democrats. Hamas and Palestinian Islamist Jihad has been uh, classified as terrorist organizations by the U.S. The bill also cites National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan's remarks in October, only days after the attack on Israel. Iran is complicit in this attack in in a broad sense because they have provided the lion's share of the funding for the military wing of Hamas. They have provided capabilities. They have provided support and they have provided engagement and contact with Hamas over years and years, Sullivan said. Speaker Mike Johnson believes the GOP has enough votes to open an impeachment inquiry against the president. 
The House Speaker said during a Fox News interview on Saturday that he thinks the GOP has the votes to open up an impeachment inquiry into the president. The administration has been facing investigations from House Republicans over his family's overseas business dealings and alleged weaponization of the federal government. Well, the United States should not lose focus on China's ambitions toward Taiwan, we're being told. Um, Just the News points out that Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Charles Brown says that Americans should be worried about China potentially invading uh, Taiwan. Brown also said that the possible incursion is part of the reason why deterrence is so important so that conflict does not occur. Brown said that even if China does not use military force against Taiwan, Beijing's actions in Hong Kong may illustrate its plans for the self-governing island, which the People's Republic of China views as a rogue province. And a Vermont school district official asserts a detransition awareness day going against the district's equity policy. Well, officials within a Vermont school district said that celebrating Detransition Awareness Day is hurting uh, or is hurtful to students who identify as transgender and that it does not align with the district's equity policy, according to documents obtained by parents defending education and shared exclusively with Town Hall. The documents show that on February 6, 2023, a parent emailed the school Uh, the school board and superintendent of Essex Westford School District, requesting to add Detransition Awareness Day on March 12th to the school calendar. In addition, the parent requested the book Irreversible Damage by Abigail Schreier be available to students on an easel atop the uh, uh, shelves of the high school library. In response, the school district claimed that students who who transition gender um, in an, uh, any direction are recognized during Pride Month, which occurs in June. Of course, that is flatly not the case. A longstanding arrangement between the Department of Veterans Affairs and Immigration and Customs Enforcement to process claims for migrant medical care is drawing scrutiny for veterans advocates uh, who are concerned that it could affect the agency's um, mission of caring for veterans, who are concerned that it could affect the agency's mission of caring for them amid the ongoing border crisis and existing complaints about the uh, care delivered to veterans. When an illegal immigrant under ICE detention requires health care, they are typically treated on site by medical professionals. However, if specialists or emergency care is required, they may be transported to an independent private provider. In such cases, ICE contracts with the Veterans Affairs Financial Services Center to process reimbursements for those providers. According to a report from July, ICE has hundreds of letters of understanding in which ICE's Health Service Corps will reimburse providers of uh, Medicare rates. That uses uh, the VA's FSC Healthcare Claims Processing System, a portal that allows providers to submit and view claims and access other resources. So there's concerns that Um, veterans will be displaced in this process. Coming up next, a conversation with Ambassador Francis Rooney on the Hamas attack on Israel, its global implications, and the Israeli-U.S. response. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Many of us have been following the events, following the Hamas attack on Israel on October the 7th. There are global implications. And how is Israel and the United States response contributing to the resolution of these 
uh, ongoing issues. Are we subject to a wider conflict? We're here to talk about some of these uh, issues as Ambassador Francis Rooney. He represented Florida's 19th congressional district here in the United States in the House of Representatives from 2017 to 2021. From the years uh, 2005 to 2008, he served as the United States Ambassador to the Holy See, appointed by President George W. Bush, and subsequently wrote a book about diplomacy and the U.S. Holy See relationship titled The Global Vatican. Today, he joins us to talk about the Hamas attack on Israel, its global implications, and the Israeli and U.S. response. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. This has been such a difficult thing to uh, witness from our vantage point here in the United States, both from the events that took place beginning on October 7th, but have continued up to this point, but also to watch our own administration uh, in its response to these events. Let me just ask you to initially give us uh, uh, your impression of what happened on October 7th and following. Well, I think it's important for people to remember that Hamas invaded Israel, killed 1,400 people, took all kinds of hostages. You know, if you read the United States media these days, you'd think that Israel was some kind of aggressor uh, against these aggrieved uh, Palestinians. And I I think the people need to go back to the the root of what happened here. The the more Israel can deal with Hamas, the better off I think we all are, and the quicker. Yeah, yeah. Initially, I was very impressed that the Biden administration seemed to take a very firm stand in support of Israel, and they maintain that position. But we seem to be encouraging Israel to act against its own interest in um, postponing a response to the horrific events of October 7th and following. Your, your thoughts on how the U.S. government has responded? Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think that uh, the, they started out strong and clear, and now they're getting weak and fuzzy. And I think they're responding to this pressure from these pro-Palestinian groups, which I certainly don't understand that at all, uh, especially coming from the younger people and college professors and all that. I don't think the administration ought to respond to that stuff at all. But they're weak, and they are. Well, we also have an election coming up in 2024, and polls seem to indicate that the president is losing Muslim support in uh, Michigan and some other areas. So that, I'm guessing, is a, a part of the calculation uh, that is fueling the, the somewhat backpedaling on this uh, this response, urging Israel uh, to either resist responding as any nation on Earth would. And the United States certainly has in similar circumstances, um, but also, uh, again, urging them to act against their own interest. Yeah, it, it doesn't. Uh, Israel shouldn't pay any attention to him at all. And I think it just shows the political pandering of the Biden administration and they better pay attention. They better pay attention to the fact that there are probably more Jews in this country than there are Palestinians. Now, the problem is you got all these young people that are spun up. What did they call this? The the anti-colonial movement or something that that takes in a a broad swath of people of minorities of Palestinians of people evicted from their homes because they can't pay. All kinds of stuff that's going on out there. And the Biden administration is is. Uh, um, appeasing it, trying to appease it. Yeah, and I think politics at least plays some role in that. I can understand a desire to, to support the Palestinian people, but they make no distinction between the Palestinian people and Hamas. And they uh, have demonstrated uh, vitriol against the Jewish community here in the United States. Uh, and we're seeing rampant uh, anti-Semitism that reminds me in some ways, uh, in some ways of Kristallnacht, 
where it is blatant. It's um, it's out there. We're finding it in some of our um, academic um, environments. Uh, you, your thoughts on uh, what has probably just been dormant for a long period of time, the quiet part now being said quite loudly. Yeah, what, like 100 professors at Columbia, even after the president of Columbia had to retract their uh, pro-Palestine message, 100 professors signed a letter saying, no, uh-uh, this is, uh, we, we need to stand with Palestine here against the Israeli aggressors. I mean, what nonsense is that? Yeah, lack of understanding, it would seem to me. What are some of the global implications? We know that uh, United States personnel abroad have been under attack 70 plus times now. Um, we have not responded as a nation very aggressively. Iran is at the at the core of all of this. We know that their proxies have been responsible for much of what we're seeing. Your thoughts on how the United States has characterized those um, attacks and how they've responded to them? Well, it's it's a pretty dangerous situation with Iran working through the Houthis and working through Hezbollah and now working through Hamas. And, uh, you know, their main goal is to destabilize the nation rapprochement between Israel and Saudi Arabia. And they've done a pretty good job of it. Uh, and so far, we've been able to repel their drones. None of the tankers in the uh, Gulf of Aden have, have had uh, major damage. Uh, they haven't hit any of our military assets, but we're, what we're saying in the Wall Street Journal today, they picked off like five drones that were going after uh, takers. Mm hmm. I know a lot of people were concerned by the six billion dollars uh, in funds that were made available to Iran. Congress has responded to that uh, to some degree, but. The administration um, were, was very careful to suggest that Iran could not direct that funds. They did not have immediate access to it. It could only be used for humanitarian uh, purposes and so on. Um, what role do you think that played in the timing of all of this, in addition to the talks with Saudi Arabia and uh, Israel that would have been quite a blow to Iran in that region? Well, I, I think, you know, if you think that uh, those restrictions are going to count anything to Iran, you better go talk to the tooth fairy. <laughs> and I, that all started with Obama, you know, giving them the first round of money and in cash even. And that ridiculous agreement they signed that we couldn't go test uh, for weapons and nuclear uh, activity in their military sites was defective from the start. And now Biden picks it right back up. I mean, how do the American people put up with these people? Well, I'll leave that an open question. There are a number of answers, uh, not, not not many of them very uh, flattering. Your thoughts moving forward on what's likely to happen. We're concerned about escalation. We're already seeing that to some degree. And the United States holding the line in support of, of Israel in a very um, highly politically charged uh, season here in the U.S. as we're anticipating the 2024 presidential election. Are you optimistic that the United States... Uh, that members of Congress, that the administration will hold the line in their support of Israel? Yeah, I, I'm optimistic that the Congress will. Uh, I'm not so sure about some of this nonsense coming out of Secretary Blinken and Biden right now about uh, a, lo uh, a longer pause and et cetera. I think that'll let Israel just do their job, get it over with uh, quickly. The longer it sits around, the more longer there, the longer there is time for Iran to work mayhem through Hezbollah, through Hamas, and through those Houthis down here, like they've been doing this week. Well, Ambassador uh, Rooney, I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us about this. I'm I'm happy and heartened to hear that you're optimistic. I hope you're right on that on that score, and appreciate your insight. Well, thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. Again, Ambassador Francis Rooney represented Florida's 19th congressional district in the U.S. House. 
from 2017 to 2021, and also served as the United States Ambassador to the Holy See, appointed by President George W. Bush. He's also the uh, uh, author of a book, The Global Vatican, uh, that uh, focuses on the relationship between the United States and the Holy See. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments to continue our march through the headlines. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, Portland only. Retired Associate Justice Sandra Day O'Connor died at 93 years old this week. An American original, a judicial trailblazer, the former Supreme Court justice. She passed away in Phoenix on uh, Friday morning uh, in Arizona at age 93. The cause, according to the Supreme Court's Office of Public Information, was complications related to advanced dementia, probably Alzheimer's and a respiratory illness. Those of a certain age will remember O'Connor's appointment by Ronald Reagan in 1981 when she became the first woman to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court. As Reagan said upon her nomination or his nomination of her, she is truly a person for all seasons, possessing those unique qualities of temperament, fairness, intellectual capacity and devotion to the public good, which have characterized the 101 brethren who have preceded her, end quote. She served until 2006 and was, along with Justice Anthony Kennedy, a consistent swing vote in many of the court's 5-4 decisions. As Chief Justice John Roberts said in a statement, a daughter of the American Southwest, Sandra Day O'Connor, blazed an historic trail as our nation's first female justice. She met that challenge with undaunted determination, indisputable ability, and engaging candor. We at the Supreme Court mourn the loss of a beloved colleague, a fiercely independent defender of the rule of law, and an eloquent advocate for civics education. And we celebrate her enduring legacy as a true public servant and patriot. Rest in peace, Madam Justice. Well, New York Republican uh, George Santos has been ousted from the House of Representatives, which just held an expulsion vote on Friday on the Long Island congressman. The final vote, 311 to 114. It's the ninth expulsion vote in House history and the sixth successful one of uh, two thirds majority was needed around 290 votes. And Santos colleagues made that number with room to spare as the New York Post reports. Santos, 35, had been mired in controversy since his 2022 election. He was admitted fabricating much of his biography, and federal prosecutors accuse him of laundering campaign funds and defrauding donors. Santos has pleaded not guilty to those charges. The Post adds a bipartisan congressional investigation last month found that he charged almost $4,000 for spa treatments, including Botox, to his congressional campaign account. When GOP members from swing districts wanted desperately to... Well, to oust Santos, as they rightly saw him as an embarrassment and a threat to their reelection. Now they've gotten their wish and the Republicans ultra slim majority just got even slimmer. On Thursday, U.S. District Judge Shalia Moses lifted a block raised um, by Texas against federal immigration authorities from removing razor wire placed on private land along the border with Mexico. Texas had placed the wire with landowners' permission in an effort to stem the flow of illegal aliens into the state. Moses noted the utter failure of the Biden administration to prevent illegal entry into the country, but she reasoned that Texas' motion to block the Fed from removing the wire on the claim that doing so was illegal would not prevent uh, prevail in court. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton voiced his disappointment that the federal government's blatant and disturbing efforts to subvert law and order at our state's border with Mexico will be allowed to continue. But he also promised to appeal that ruling. 
Again, that uh, razor wire was placed on private property. Well, more companies are dumping college degree requirements. A college degree just ain't what it used to be. Well, that appears to be the conclusion that nearly half of American companies have come to. Walmart, IBM, Bank of America and Google recently announced that they're dropping their bachelor's degree requirement for many of their job positions. Sort of breaking through the paper ceiling, if you will. They're not alone, according to a survey from Intelligent.com. Companies are increasingly dropping their bachelor's requirement for jobs, with 55 percent of 800 U.S. companies surveyed, noting that they had already eliminated college degree requirements. What companies have begun doing instead is developing their own apprenticeship programs, as um, Accenture first did back in 2016, through which it has hired 1,200 of its employees, 80 percent of whom did not have bachelor's degrees. As Accenture North America CEO Jimmy Etheridge explained, a person's educational credentials are not the only indicators of success. So we advance our approach to hiring to focus on skills, experiences, and potential. Indeed, gaining real-world work experience and developing skills are as important, if not more so, for companies looking to hire competent employees, especially when they anticipate further developing their particular skills via apprenticeship training. And after all, there is some concern about what colleges and universities, even Ivy League universities, are turning out these days. Well, did President Biden boot so-called Bidenomics? Will anybody else uh, notice that neither Joe Biden nor his surrogates have used the term Bidenomics lately? Well, it seems like only yesterday when he was um, brainstorming, uh, rather barnstorming, maybe both, uh, the country and uh, crowing about what a swell economy we have and blustering about how, like Barack Obama did with Obamacare, he was going to lean into this pejorative and wield its um, weapon-like against his critics. Well, a funny thing happened on the way to this rehabilitation. The people refused to buy it, having used the word Bidenomics more than 100 times to promote the Um, splendidness of the American economy in recent months. NBC News reports that Scranton Joe hasn't uttered the word once in all his public remarks since November the 1st, when in a speech in Minnesota, he likened Bidenomics to the American dream. As for who had the deciding vote and whether to jettison the term from Biden's big book of branding, we might look no further than South Carolina Congressman James Clyburn, who was instrumental in getting Biden elected in the first place. I don't like it either, said Clyburn. In any case, it's still the economy, stupid. So Team Biden's focus group is no doubt already brainstorming a suitable replacement word or phrase or maybe not making reference to it at all. Well, a judge has blocked Montana's TikTok ban. Montana's ban on the website was slated to go into effect a month from today. Well, a month from Friday. However, because the ban ostensibly infringes on the constitutional rights of users, according to the U.S. District Judge Donald Malloy, the January 1st implementation of it won't be happening. Amazingly, TikTok lawyers say national security concerns raised by the state are not backed by solid evidence, a point that the judge appeared to agree with in his 48-page ruling. The Washington Examiner reported the legality of the law will be considered further at a bench trial that has not yet been scheduled, but for now, TikTok will remain available in the state. Montana Attorney General Spokeswoman Austin 
Newsom noted the judge indicated several times that the analysis could change as the case proceeds and the state has the opportunity to present a full factual record, end quote. Well, that full factual record is twofold. First, the communist Chinese-owned social media company harvests Americans' data, which absolutely is a national security concern. And second, a TikTok ban doesn't violate the First Amendment. Well, carjacking the FBI, well, in an incident that pointedly demonstrates just how bad crime has gotten in America's largest cities. An FBI employee was the latest victim of a carjacking in downtown Washington, D.C. The incident occurred in the middle of the afternoon, just a couple of blocks away from Lincoln Park, where dozens of children were playing. D.C. has recorded over 900 carjackings this year alone. The problem is that while the rates of these uh, and other violent crimes have been spiking, the criminal conviction rate has been dropping. Furthermore, in the case of the D.C. carjackings, the majority of those uh, crimes are being committed by juveniles setting themselves up for a life of crime at earlier and earlier ages. This is part of the negative social ramifications of the breakdown of the nuclear family and more specifically, the the dearth of fathers in the home. This is not just a crime problem. It's a culture problem. From the mastermind behind the 10-7, the October 7th Hamas terror attack, this was just a rehearsal, he said. Keep that in mind. Rand Paul performed a Heimlich maneuver on a choking Joni Ernst. She's very grateful and survived unarmed. More people are packing thanks to constitutional carry laws. And if you want to reduce crime, you have to make it clear that the likely victims of crime will be carrying. We'll tell you more about that and comments made by John Lott, who as president of the Crime Prevention Resource Center and the author of the best-selling More Guns, Less Crime, has done more than perhaps any single American to ensure that proponents of the Second Amendment are armed with the facts. That's coming up in just a moment, but we do need to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, so stay with us. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Weep not. We'll be back tomorrow. Anyway, more people are packing thanks to constitutional carry. Again, if you want to reduce crime, you have to make it clear that the likely victims of said crime will be carrying. John Lott, president of Crime Prevention Resource Center and the author of More Guns, Less Crime, has done more to perhaps uh, any single American to ensure that proponents of the Second Amendment are armed with the facts. Well, those facts continue to evolve, too, and in an encouraging direction for liberty. For example, a new study by Lott indicates that more than half of the states now allow constitutional carry. That is, the right of residents to carry a concealed firearm without a permit. He estimates that 8.4% of American adults now have concealed carry permits. Criminals tend to go where the guns aren't, but the American people are growing increasingly tired of being at the mercy of those criminals. As the Washington Times reported, with the addition this year of Alabama, Florida and Nebraska, 27 states now allow concealed carry without a permit. As Lott notes, what that means is uh, lots uh, is a lot less costly, a lot less difficult for people to carry, and that primarily impacts poor people that live in high-crime urban areas, adding that these lower barriers mean more racial minorities and women are carrying in high-crime urban areas. If his theory holds, this reality should help reduce crime in the places that need it most. Well, Israel and Hamas, who knew what and when? It's an open question. 
One of the realities pondered nearly two months ago, immediately after the October 7th terrorist attack by Hamas on Israel, was how the Jewish state and its vaunted intelligence service could have been caught so woefully off guard. It became clear almost immediately that the planning for Hamas's barbaric attack was both lengthy and detailed. And now we learn, as the New York Times reports, Israeli officials obtained Hamas's battle plans for the October 7th terrorist attack more than a year before it happened. Documents, emails and interviews show, but Israeli military and intelligence officials dismissed the plan as aspirational, considering it too difficult for Hamas to carry out. End quote. As hot airs, John Sexton writes, the whole thing comes down to a failure of imagination and also a too firm belief among senior leaders that Hamas was not interested in attacking uh, Israel simultaneously thought too little of Hamas's capabilities and too much of their good intentions. It's a dramatic failure, which the article compares directly to the U.S. failure to predict 9-11. My guess is that won't happen again in Israel. Well, Israeli forces are self-limiting. One thing that should now be painfully clear to even casual observers of the Israel-Hamas war is that Israel and Hamas aren't equally armed combatants. Yes, Israel has military superiority, but it also has moral superiority. The two sides returned to hostilities on Friday after a week-long pause in the fighting. And that means Israel is once again under withering pressure to refrain from destroying its mortal enemy, Hamas. The Jew-hating left claims that Israel is engaged in a genocide of the Palestinian people. And as the New York Post's Caitlin Dombass asks rather rhetorically, how exactly can the Israeli Defense Force avoid harming civilians when its enemy hides behind innocence, directing its operations from the most sacred and safe spaces, including hospitals, in violation of the international rules of war? And who's challenging Hamas on that point? Well, it's a great question, and even Joe Biden's flack seemed to appreciate it, said White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby yesterday. In the last 24 hours, the Israel Defense Forces have been putting a map online of places where people in Gaza need to avoid and need to go. They have also been doing it with the paper and leaflets and that kind of thing. He continued, it's very rare for a modern military to take those kinds of steps, basically telegraphing their punches before they actually conduct operations. But of course, that doesn't get much time or attention in the MSM. Well, the House voted to permanently freeze the $6 billion in Iranian funds. Better late than never, I suppose. And there's no telling what Joe Biden and the uh, Democrat-controlled Senate will do. But as uh, just the news reports, House Republicans on Thursday approved legislation to permanently freeze $6 billion in Iranian funds that the Biden administration had agreed to release as part of a hostage exchange with Tehran earlier this year. The vote was 307 to 119, which indicates strong bipartisan support and which may paint both the Senate and the president president rather into a corner regarding Iran. The rogue regime's support for Hamas is well documented and the fungibility of money means that Biden's lavish gift could well have been used to launch attacks, not just on Israel forces, but American forces as well. We are assured that they have no access to that money, but the observers from outside the administration are a bit skeptical of that claim. 
Well, President Biden's uh, administration is nickeling and diming Americans at every possible opportunity, be it with the regulatory state, costing the average household $14,000 annually. Bidenflation weakening the dollar by nearly 19 percent and now via the Internal Revenue Service. Well, the IRS will now charge 8 percent interest for underpayment of taxes as of October 1st. That's a 3 percent point increase in interest charges from just two years ago. So if you haven't paid at least 90 percent of your taxes before filing or have less than one thousand dollars, a one thousand dollar difference, then the IRS will include an eight percent interest penalty on the outstanding taxes. Why is the IRS doing this? It's probably a rhetorical question, but the answer is because it's more money for the federal government's coffers. Last year alone, the IRS raked in $1.8 billion in underpayment penalties for more than 12 million Americans. So with Bidenflation weakening the dollar, the IRS is not about to be on the losing end of that fiscal situation. On Sunday, Texas Governor Greg Abbott announced that he will soon sign a new law to empower state officers to arrest and detain illegal aliens for illegally entering the state. The problem is extraordinarily bad, Abbott explained. The numbers are high, and that is because Joe Biden continues to lay out the welcome mat, welcoming migrants into the United States of America who enter illegally, he added. They, that said, uh, what we've seen in our numbers in the state of Texas is because of the wall that we've uh, built, because of that razor wire barrier that we've built, Texas is now no longer the number one illegal entry point. This new law will effectively make it a state crime for an illegal alien to enter the Lone Star State. Well, another more local news, Jussie Smollett lost his appeal. Maybe in more ways than one, hate crime hoaxing actor Jesse Smollett on Friday lost his appeal of his guilty verdict for staging an infamous hate crime back in the winter of 2019, discrediting, by the way, any legitimate hate crime during the uh, report, I should say, during his 2021 trial and in the face of evidence and witness testimony that showed otherwise Smollett maintained that there was no hoax. A jury found Smollett guilty of five felony counts of disorderly conduct for which he was sentenced to 150 days in jail, 30 months probation, ordered to pay $120,106 in restitution for police resources spent on the faux crime and $25,000 in a fine. Following the court's decision, Special uh, Prosecutor Dan Webb stated, as the appellate court noted, Mr. Smollett challenged virtually every aspect of the prosecution and the appellate court correctly rejected each and every one of those challenges. Smollett's legal team promised to appeal the decision to the state's Supreme Court, but they've lost their most recent appeal. Well, we are out of time. I do appreciate your making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day and do want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.